Hello, Martin. I'm lovely to see you. Great How are day. you? Do you want to sit in the front? Yeah, very happy. Yeah, hop in. Thank you very much for driving us about, Martin. Not at all. I mean, I was just driving in with Max and going, wow, that used to be where the folk club was there. Oh, let's go and see it. Let's go and see it. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll do a bit of that and then we'll... Uh... Is the house where you were born and brought up oh, we'll still here? And, we'll go and do all that. Is there a yeah. blue plaque? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's more sort of a grey plaque, to be honest. <laughs> On a day like today. Today, yeah. It's raining and a bit dour, isn't it? It's Tutnuas. <laughs> We're in a quiet, unassuming cul-de-sac of semi-detached houses in Scunthorpe, the industrial town in North Lincolnshire, home to the UK's largest steel processing plant, but of many a musical joke and blocked by some internet search engines for having an obscene word in its name. But this very street is also the birthplace of today's Folk on Foot guest. Martin Simpson has been a professional musician for more than 45 years. Some call him a national treasure. He's often to be found on the list of the greatest guitarists of all time. He's been nominated for an amazing 31 Radio 2 Folk Awards and is almost a fixture in the Musician of the Year category. His repertoire ranges from old-time American blues through the English folk tradition to his own award-winning compositions. He's passionate about the natural world and constantly tweets his sightings of birds and animals as he travels the country. So Martin's going to show us where he was born, introduce us to his daughter Max and take us on a walk in the woods on this edition of Folk on Foot. So we're at number nine, Worley Drive, <laughs> Scunthorpe. Yeah, we are. There isn't a blue plaque or even a brown plaque no, over the door, no, but this is the scene of your childhood. This is where I grew up, yeah. And uh, as you can see, it's cooling towers. Cooling towers, and you can actually see the top of a blast furnace there at the end of the road. I like that. <laughs> you started performing very young, didn't you? And when was your first gig? I was 14 when I got my first paid gig, but my first time I ever played in public was about 250 yards over there on the corner of East Common Lane. So we're going to walk around to the folk club where you did your first gig. Yeah. But where did you get your first guitar from? My uncle, Eric, and my brother Jeff bought it for me for Christmas. It came from John's Bargain Shop. It cost £8. And what sort of guitar was it? It was an Antoria, which was... I think it was made in the Czech Republic or somewhere like that. And did and your mum and dad encourage you in no. music? <laughs> <laughs> in a word Keep that racket down <laughs> no they didn't my dad was a singer you know he loved music but he didn't it wasn't his thing to to encourage really he just what, what sort of singing did he do oh, he, he was a light opera singer he was very very good Gilbert and Sullivan lots of that I've got some photographs at home of him in costume for 1930s productions, you know. I mean, he was the red shadow in the desert song and things like that, you know. And he was the romantic lead in Lilac Time and all these very of-their-time musicals. Was he quite an old dad when oh, he yeah, was Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he yeah. was born in 1899, of course. 
Yeah, he fought in the First World War. I mean, on all my gigs, I say, you know, my father was born in 1899. And I usually qualify it because otherwise you get... We start doing not the so sums long. now. We yeah. can't work well, out. Well, this woman in the audience I said... He wasn't. <laughs> so, well, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. he really was. You know. So how old was he when you were born then? 54. Right. You've written a song about your dad, Never Any Good. Yeah. Which is an incredibly moving song to listen to. I, every time I hear it, I feel moved. But it seems, in a way, critical of your dad. Is that through your mum's eyes or it's, through your it's, eyes? Yeah, it's, it's not my eyes, really. I mean, what made me write that song was a conversation with my middle brother... They're my stepbrothers, my older brothers, and uh, we're having this conversation on the phone. He lives in France. And he said, yeah, well, I've, you know, I've never actually had a hobby that I didn't make a profit from. And my mind said, well, that's not exactly a hobby, actually, is it really? If you want to look at it in that sense. And he said, I mean, I know why that is, of course. It's because, of, you know, your daddy, I mean, he was never any good with money, was he? And I felt, I felt a rage, actually, Overcome me. I just thought, what an extraordinarily foolish statement to make in terms of, you know, the relationship that they had, the fact that in the early 50s, my father would take on a woman who was effectively homeless with two small children, who had nothing to do with him, you know, and he married her and adopted them and, and so brought them So that's what up. happened. Your mum yeah. came to the door, effectively. Yeah, to rent, according to the song. to rent a room. Right. And so I actually have the book that I wrote the lyrics in, and I just put the phone down and started to write. And it's a very violent set of movements across the page, you know. <laughs> and it took me a very short time to write that song. And it's a song that's its probably my most lauded song, I think, really. Well, for obvious reasons, because it's from the heart and it expresses the love for the positive things that your father gave you. Which were enormous, which uh, absolutely enormous. My... My love of songs, my love of nature, they come from him. Well, you were never any good with money. Couldn't even hold a job. Not steady enough for the office. Not hard enough for the hard. You would rather be riding your Norton. Going fishing with your split cane rod. You were never any good with money. You couldn't even hold a job. When your grammar school days were over. It was 1917, and you did the right and proper thing. You were just 18, you were never mentioned in dispatches. You never mentioned what you did or saw. You were just another keen young man in the mud and stink of war. You were never any good with money, couldn't even hold a job. Not steady enough for the office. Not hard enough for the hard You'd rather be singing the Pirate King Or fishing with your split cane rod You were never any good with money Couldn't even hold a job And you came home from the Great War With the pips of a captain's rank And a German officer's luger And no money in the bank Your family sent you down the coal mine to learn to be captain there But you didn't stand it very long You needed the light in the air You were never any good with money Couldn't even hold a job Not steady enough for the office 
Not hard enough for the hard You'd rather be watching the fulmers fly Or fishing with your split cane rod You were never any good with money You couldn't even hold a job When the second war came along You knew what should be done You would re-enlist to teach young men The booby trap and the gun And then they sent you home to Yorkshire With a crew and a Lewis gun So you could save your seaside town From the bombers of the Hun You were never any good with money Couldn't even hold a job Not steady enough for the office Not hard enough for the hard You'd rather be finding the night jar's nest Or fishing with your split cane rod You were never any good with money When my mother came to your door With a baby in her arms And her big hurt boy just nine years old Trying to keep her from harm If you had been a practical man Then you would have been forewarned You would have seen that it never would work And I would have never been born I really spent a lot of my life wrestling with other people's negativity but my dad really didn't have negativity. Was your mum negative about him, though? Because you oh, point yeah. her in it as saying he was a selfish oh, yeah. man and, and you were his selfish son. Yeah, she was very... That sounds harsh. She was very bitter. Hers was not a happy life. Well, there's no proper work in your seaside town. So we moved here looking for a job. You were storming at the power station just before I came along. And Nobody talked about how you quit But I know that's what you did My mother said you were a selfish man And I was your selfish kid You were never any good with money Couldn't even hold a job Not steady enough for the office Not hard enough for the hard And your naught and it was soon gone Along with your split cane rod you were never any good with money You couldn't even hold a job You showed me eye bright in the hedgerow Speed well and traveller's joy You showed me how to use my eyes When I was just a boy And you taught me how to love a song And all you knew of nature's ways These are the greatest gifts I've ever known And I use them every day Never any good with money Couldn't even hold a job Not steady enough for the office Not hard enough for the hard You'd rather be riding in Norton Going fishing with your split cane rod You were never any good with money You couldn't even hold a job Let's keep walking on to the folk club Sure. So there you are, you've got your eight-pound guitar. My eight-pound guitar. And it was 1965, so the folk scene was kicking off and Scunthorpe had one of the best folk clubs in the country, just around the corner here. And were you able to go in because you were underage, weren't you? Was it in a pub? No. No, it was in a hall called the Good Companions Hut, which was a Nissan hut. Right. And a wartime leftover. It's gone now, but the, the, the site's still very clear, you know, that's where it was from. And uh, 
and I was 12 and it was on a Tuesday night I think it was sixpence to get in you know no alcohol or anything it was cups of tea and that sort of thing and what were you playing at that time well I was listening to Bob Dylan and Joan Byers and Peter Paul and Mary and things of that nature and it never occurred to me to have any fear (laughs) (laughs) so one of the first things I ever sang in public at the folk club was Mary Hamilton, which is a massive Scots ballad. 600 the, verses. About 600 verses <laughs> and about 400 chords. So <laughs> one of which was an F-sharp minor, which I still wake up in the night screaming, <laughs> thinking about how difficult F-sharp minor is to play <laughs> when you're 12. <laughs> so I did the wise thing. I left it out. <laughs> <laughs> Just skipped over that I bit. Skipped yeah. over that. <laughs> Superfluous F-sharp minor. Who needs them? <laughs> and, I mean, I must have been absolutely sodding horrific. <laughs> In hindsight. How did it go down with the crowd? Uh, They were very sympathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very sympathetic. And did you decide early on that this was a job you were going to do? Oh, literally, I got the guitar on Christmas Day. By the end of Christmas afternoon, I knew that that's what I was going to do. And after my mother died, amongst the things I found and took home, were all my school reports. My school reports were utterly brilliant until I was 12 and then they gradually went like that. The more into music I got, the less academia seemed to... He's making a downward gesture, ladies and gentlemen. A downward gesture. (laughs) A plummeting gesture. Yeah. Because you just cared about the music and nothing else. I knew that's what I was supposed to do. I mean, really did. When I think back, and I talked to friends of mine, you know, who were around at that point. They'll go, we didn't know what you were doing. We could not understand how you could do the things that you were doing. You know, I mean, I went to see a, a blues package at the Manchester Free Trade Hall with a busload of mates, you know, and I was 15. They were leaving and they were going, where's Simpson? And Simpson was in the dressing room with T-Bone Walker and John Lee Hooker and Jimmy Reed and Big Joe Williams, you know. And they were going... How did he do that? No, just there was no question in my mind, but that's where I should be. He's hanging out with these guys, you know. Where was the club? Just See over that here. bungalow is? Yeah. That is the site <laughs> of the Good Companions Hut. And did you start to see other players there? Yes, everybody came round because it was a really good club. And so I was able to literally sit at the feet of everybody that was working the folk scene at that point. So look, Wally so Drive. Are, uh, Wally Drive, we're right by the sign to Wally Drive. So good, does it, it feel good? Uh, yes, it does. It's 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 strange. It's strange. It's sort of It's not a happy place, but it's but it's a good place, you know. Wayne and Amy doing really nicely in the house. It's looking good. Have you? Yeah, he's got the key. You want to go in? Yeah. Would you nice. mind? I'd, I'd absolutely love to. Would you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Wayne would mind. I, I'm just going to go and get my daughter. I'm going to say. Oh, how lovely. So have yeah. you lived here a long time? We've been in um, nearly 40 years. Wow. Yeah, we have five children. 
Gosh. Which caused havoc in the cul-de-sac, <laughs> especially uh, with Mary. Well, it was nice and quiet for them to play out. Here. Yeah, it yeah. was. But this uh, is. oh wow, she was a, oh about two or three years old last time I saw her. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling tales on your grandma and saying. <laughs> Martin, you know, because we had five, yeah. and your mum would come out to the gate and say, clear off round your own end. <laughs> and they'd say, well, but we only live next door but one. <laughs> then she'd come round and tell me that the kids need to be in the garden. She was grumpy. Well, I, I mean, I know I'm not telling tales out of school because I knew you would agree. <laughs> yeah, no. So how is life treating you? Are you still as busy? Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, the songs. We love the family ones more than anything. Yeah, well Max will be singing on the new one, won't he? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's lovely. It is lovely. Shall we go and have a quick look in the garden? Is Definitely, that right? yeah. It was so important to me. You can see there, there's a garage. That's the garage for our house and next to it, there used to be one of those asbestos sided garages and there was a big hole in it which I think my brother made by kicking a football at it, to be honest. And I used to get through the hole, and underneath the workbenches in there was a pile of maps. And I used to get these maps out and go on imaginary journeys on the maps. And so, maps. Maps. <laughs> maps and walking, in fact. Yes. I was a child of empire, my garden was my battlefield, my apple trees, my jungle, and all mine to explore. I would crawl into my cave through the neighbor's garage wall and sit and ponder old maps when I was very small. Right, well, this is doing my head in completely. Is it? Yeah, that hasn't changed a bit. The garage wall? Yeah. And the thing that's most amazing is that that apple tree is still there because that was, that was, that was my jungle. So did you used to climb up the apple tree? I spent days in that apple tree. <laughs> Hiding from your mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She a yeah. tough cookie. She was, she was hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair to say. <laughs> and did she live here till the end of her life? Or? She did, yeah. Yeah. With the help of, of Dawn and Harry and Joyce up the street, you know, just proper neighbours like neighbours should be. Did she ever come and see you play live? Oh, yeah. What did she make of it? Often. <laughs> well, she got to the point where she was actually very proud of me because I got reviewed in the Telegraph. Ah, yeah, that's, the that's when she the, knew you'd made it. Yeah, the, her newspaper, you know, the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, my, yes, quite. <laughs> but she actually, she was very, very cantankerous on gigs. You never, never knew when she was going to really blow it, you know. Because it was the folk clubs, you know, and, and you get floor singers and... Some of them made some pretty funny noises, and you knew to be polite, you know. Well, my mother didn't. <laughs> <laughs> she gave a strict oh, critical oh, appraisal, did Lord she? Oh, <laughs> God. And I'd be dying, you know. <laughs> and she'd be going, well, I think this is awful. Why does he think he can sing? That kind of thing. Oh, God. Get me out of here. Underneath the dusty workbench, I would follow paths through woodland. I'd trek along the riverside and ford the shallow stream. And when I had grown tired, I would fold the maps back carefully so no one else could follow to the places I had been.
Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was right that here. Was that right here. Yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic, Martin. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Pleasure. How funny. So how did that feel, Martin, going back into your old garden? It was staggering. Dawn's husband said, did I want to see inside the house? And I it said, started, I said, well, no, I, you know, it's okay. And he said, well, just come into the front room for a bit. And he said, I don't know how you feel about this, but a friend of mine is a medium. And I said, well, didn't say anything, you know, it's just, okay. She's been here a few times and she always feels somebody is there. And she said, the first time it was an old lady and the old lady didn't say much, but the second time she said, I was sitting there and on the sofa, I could feel an old lady and an old gentleman. And the gentleman, <laughs> the gentleman spoke to me and said, tell Jeff that I loved them all equally and the same. Now, my elder brother's called Jeff. Wow. And there is absolutely no way on God's earth that that woman knew anything about my father and my mother's relationship or the fact that the elder brother was called Jeff. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. It's really extraordinary. I don't know how to feel about that at all. It's <laughs> amazing. I'm going to tell Jeff. And you're quite right, that's exactly the right response, I have to tell Jeff. Yeah. That, oh my God, that is Outward Junior Academy. No, it's not. It's Brumby Juniors, where I went. It didn't look anything like <laughs> that's that. It's now a modern brick-built block, oh, isn't it? Oh God. We are now heading south east out of Scunthorpe on the A18. As you can see, it's very beautiful. Wicks, Aldi, <laughs> any part, caravan or truck, it's, open to the public. It's funny to be here, right. But we are now getting in sight of the steelworks. We can see the chimneys now, can't we? Yeah, a lot of steam, at least it's white. <laughs> yes. Used to be yellow when I was a kid. But the blast now, you can see the blast furnaces in front of us. Those, yes. those and cooling towers as well, just beyond Cooling that. towers and blast furnaces, there we go. Those are the queens, those blast furnaces. All the time when I was a kid at night, the town would be lit up, because this is the highest part of the town, it would be lit up by the slag tipping. So the, all of a sudden, the whole of the sky would go whoosh, go red. And, uh, and it was very impressive. Crimson skies at dead of night is a quote from a song. Uh -huh. Well, I just thought I'd throw that one yeah. in. And it's a big complex, this, isn't it? I mean, we've been driving past it for some time and it's still going on. It's huge. I must say, there's something magnificent about it to me. You know, I, I industrial agree architecture entirely. And I the agree. power of manufacturing industry in this way. The proper word is awesome actually it's jaw-dropping in its scale and its power and its production you know it's, it's still here that's so what we might do is drive out of town up towards my old bug hunting and nest chasing and 
Oh, that sounds good because I have to remind you that this is called folk on foot. I know, I realise that. Not folk in the car. Yeah, folk, folk in the <laughs> even, car. Even on a wet day, yeah. we well, have to get out and go for a walk. I think it's I'm afraid. kind of cool. No, that's we're definitely going to do that. I mean, it, it kind of makes me feel slightly weird being here because I spent days and days and days and days here with other kids or on but your own. Not that often with other kids. Occasionally, um, with my dad, I'd come a lot. It's an estate. Is it's it? an estate. Yeah, it's a shooting. Because we're now, we should say, we're now out in the rural area. Really, there's a ploughed field on the right, yeah. and a woodland on on the left. Yeah, these um, are Twigmore Woods. We are taking our life in our hands, and we're going to go down and see if what used to be here is still here. Wow! When I was a kid. How long is it since you've been back here? It's got to be 35 years ago, probably really? more. I think. Underneath the dusty workbench I would follow paths through woodland I'd trek along the riverside And ford the shallow stream And when I had grown tired I would fold the maps back carefully So no one else could follow To the places I had been We are here. Got you. I love the fact that field there is called Sweeting Thorns. That's nice. Beautiful. So we can hear the motorway over to our right, and then on the left, there's a dark, dense forest, and you can hear the birdsong yeah. in there, can't you? That dark, tall pine wood there, that's really reminiscent of my youth, that. Well, that looks like the wood from The Wind in the Willows it to is me. Exactly, great dark wood. Yeah. It actually remarkably hasn't changed. So what would you do on a typical day when you came down here as a kid on your bike? Well, I, because I spent so much time here, I'd found out, for instance, where the gamekeeper had his gin traps, you know. And that was to protect the birds <laughs> ready for the shooting? To protect the pheasants so they could shoot them. <laughs> it's all very logical. <laughs> I'd go and see if I could get there before he did and see what, what was what, being caught. And rescue and, them? Well, alas, you can't rescue anything from a gin trap because it's... Uh, it just kills things, but uh, it's kind of scary, you know, because the big dog's barking and uh, my father took me there because my father was very good at getting on with anybody, really. This kind of a strange, sort of oddly comfortable military man, you know. He was the kind of person that you'd walk by a, an old-fashioned department store and they'd have a regimental sergeant major standing outside who who was the doorman, you know? Yes. And he would see my father coming and salute. He was that kind of man, which was really... Because your father had been in the military, Yes, he, he was a major in the Second World War, and he didn't talk about it, it wasn't a thing, but it had deeply marked him, you know? But he was also the person who found it totally comfortable to come to a place like this and strike up a conversation with the gamekeeper, you know? We went down there one day, and he gave us access to his gibbet, which is where he hung up everything that he'd killed. And it was absolutely shocking in hindsight. I mean, What did you see? Well, it was covered in everything. I mean, stoats and weasels, what was left of a badger. There were foxes, buzzards, there were crows, there were jays, magpies, a great black-backed gull on this particular occasion. And just all hanging up there, drying out, decaying. And I was just 
fascinated because I was a real, like, I would collect bits of things, you know. Well, like skeletons yeah, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So my father said, well, can we take some of this? And we ended up with a bag full of carcasses, you know. What did you do with them? Well, <laughs> are you ready? I hope nobody's listening to this at tea time. <laughs> I took them home and I said, shall I boil these? And my father said, yes. Yeah. So I put all these skulls, heads, which were covered in dried skin and bits of flesh and what have you, in a pan on the stove in the kitchen. And then I went to do my homework. Uh, and my father was in, in the kitchen cutting bread for tea with this pan, but he had no sense of smell. And I heard my mother's car come into the driveway and then I heard the engine stop. And, and you know, I could see her like, in my mind's eye walking around the side of the house. She opened the kitchen door. There's just this dreadful gagging noise <laughs> as she a horrible smell. The green steam that was coming <laughs> off this pan. <laughs> we were not popular. <laughs> but it's interesting about whether that shaped your view of the natural world. I mean, whether you understood from a very young age that it's a very cruel, a oh, very harsh place. Absolutely, no. It was shocking to me. It was... and. And I became very familiar with that aspect of it, the fact that it was this place where people thought it was all right to kill things so they could kill things. Right. <laughs> and and it's, ne you know, it's never left me. And, but also, I think when you're younger, there were such different times, you know. There was a part of me that was so close to that whole idea of if it moves, shoot it, you know. So you could have gone that way? Yeah, yeah, I had friends who did. My father was a very kind man. He thought, for instance, that the shotgun was the devil's work. He said, if you can't kill something with a rifle, you shouldn't be shooting at it. Because it just sprays the... Yeah, well, it's just, it's just like, you know... Shot everywhere. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily kill cleanly and arguably doesn't require as much skill. Whereas if you're looking at a hare's ears 200 yards away, down the barrel of a 2-2 rifle and you know exactly where to shoot. You know, he, he thought that was all right. So have you ever been shooting? Not. No. And you shooting, wouldn't want shooting. to? Shooting, Now I would, I would hate it with a passion. Yeah. Then I was interested in it. I went beating one time, you know, when I was a kid because it's one of the things you did in North Lincolnshire. If you went out into the countryside, you wanted to earn some money, you went beating for a shoot, you know. I want to ask you to sing Toy Soldiers for us. Well, I can do it's that. It's a song about, yeah. about just this very thing, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. I wrote it after driving down a Roman road, not this one, down the Fossway, in fact. The, one, the local one here is Ermine Street, you know. By the side of the road, hundreds and hundreds of dead pheasants. The Romans built this road I'm on, straight and true straight and true and brought for sport these jeweled birds like scattered beads along the verge all smashed by cars inside the wood the jay she flies shy forester of worth and carries acorns far and wide to bury in the earth Dusty pink and grey and white, blue spangled livery. The keeper blasts her from the air and nails her to a tree. 
The gibbet is a cruel show, gamekeepers Calvary. Eyeless sockets, grinning corpses rotting needlessly. Stoat and weasel, crow and buzzard hanging in the air. Judged, condemned and murdered for the crime of being there. Along the ride the corn grows high, rank nettles choke the earth. Rusting wire, twisted cages mark the place of birth of thirty million toy soldiers. Raised just to die, raised to be broken the moment they fly. I dreamed I saw them pushed in their thousands bloody the river as she flows by the romans built this road i'm on straight and true straight and true and brought for sport these jeweled birds like scattered beads along the verge all smashed by cars very powerful stuff, Martin. Is it true the Romans imported the pheasants? Is yeah, that... they, they were the first lot that brought them in. Right. And then again, I think later on, they were again imported. So that's a conservative, a very conservative figure, 30 million. It's more like 40 million pheasants. It's a gigantic biomass of birds that really shouldn't be here, you know. And they're just here for sport. And most of them, that's, that's the thing that really gets me, most of them, they're not eaten, you know, after they're shot, just thrown away. It's really a shocking waste of everything, really. And they do a massive amount of damage to, to reptiles and things like that because they pretty much eat anything, you know. Shall we walk back through the forest? Yeah. Max has seen a deer, look. Deer with antlers. Brilliant. I love that. That's interesting. That's a, an owl pellet there. Yes. One of the things that I really, really liked about coming down here was that I knew a tree where the owls roosted. And at the bottom of the tree, there were owl pellets. And so you could take them home and open them up. And find out what the owl had been eating. And find out what the owl had been eating, yeah. Mice and things like that. Mice and shrews and voles. Yeah. Good stuff. So I think you were a whiz in the biology class at school. Uh, oh, I, I was officer in charge of the nature table, me. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. No, I, really, I mean, I loved it, and I still do. Yeah. So do you still go out in the woods and look for yeah. remains? And... Yeah, oh, yeah. We have some wonderful bits and bobs at home, like the skull of a guillemot and things like that that, that Max found on the beach. And The thing about all of this is that there's... Wherever you look, there'll be something of interest, you know. Yes. Even though this is a far from, you know, natural woodland, there's still a lot going on. And the edges of this place, that's why I like... I like the edges of woodland, because that's where things really start to happen. Well, should know? we try and cut through here? Let's do that. Let's walk get through here and see what happens. Three times or three more deer. Oh, in here? Oh, well, in here. No, it'd be three more deer. Wow. And you'll have a cold nose. Yeah, you will. <laughs> what can you see, Martin? Do you see a hair? There's a hair 
just run out across this clearing here. It's wonderful, it's great. I didn't actually didn't expect to see hares here. Shall we just walk up to that slow blossom? Yes, up there? definitely. So was it your dad who, who said to you, this is how you recognise these plants, this is how you recognise this he just, species? He just talked very quietly, he'd go, uh, 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 the whole time and point things out. And so, yes, it just became a habit to look and to listen. I mean, I think in terms of my mental health, <laughs> natural history has, has saved my life, you know. So have there been times when you've been really down and escaped into nature? Many times when you just, you know, I mean, I, I think every day you have the capacity to be depressed, I think, in the world that we inhabit. And uh, to get out into the countryside and to use your eyes and to use your ears, it lifts you, you know, it gives, it gives you the sense that actually life is worth living, you know. I mean, really, it really is completely encouraging to me to do something like this. So, Martin, you've brought us to Brig now, I just have. a bit east of Scunthorpe. Very kind of you, thank you. Musically, this is an incredibly historic place, isn't it? Very important place in the history of folk song collection. In 1905, Percy Granger, who was an Australian classical composer, pianist, he came here because, like a lot of classical musicians at the time, he was looking for the inspiration, the melodic inspiration that could be found in traditional music. And he came here and he organized a song competition in 1905. And the man who won the song competition was Joseph Taylor of Saxby All Saints, who really turned out to be one of the greatest English traditional singers. A man who arguably, some of the traditional singers were very plain, very unadorned. He was a real performer. If you listen to his recording of Creeping Jane, he sings the last note an octave above where it should be. It's very theatrical, you know. <laughs> but he had a great repertoire, a great voice. And you say, if you listen to it, that means there must have been recordings made. In 1908, Percy Granger came back with his wax cylinder recording machine, which they say is in Cecil Sharp House now. I'm not sure if it's the same one, but certainly the same kind of thing. And he recorded a number of singers, but particularly Joseph Taylor. And they were released on wax cylinder, commercially released under the title of Genuine Peasant Folk Song. It was on the 5th of August The weather of unfair unto Brick fair I did repair For love I was inclined I got up with the lark in the morning with me heart full of glee, expecting near to meet my dear long time I'd wish to see. So we're going into the Brig Heritage Centre now, where they very kindly 
given us permission to use a room upstairs for Martin to sing one of the songs that was originally recorded here in the early part of the 20th century. Wow. What have we got here? Bronze Age raft, it's 2,900 years old, discovered just half a mile away along the river, buried 12 feet deep, found in the 1880s and then eventually excavated properly in 1974 and it's been on display here for the last wow. seven or eight years. It's, it's huge, yeah. isn't it? How big is it? Well, in actual fact, what you're seeing there is only about two-thirds. Add about 50% again and that's the true My size goodness. of it. And would that have been used for transporting meters. goods or people? Or? So the whole area around us would have been flooded 3,000 years ago. There'd have been little pockets of land scattered around, one over there, one over there. And this would have acted as a sort of a kind of ferry to take animals, crops, people between these little pockets of land amidst the wetlands. That's fascinating. Thank you very much for yeah. showing it to us. So Martin, you're going to sing Creeping Jane, which is Creeping Jane. one of Joseph Taylor's songs that yes. were, were collected by Percy Granger. Yeah. Tell us about what the song's about. <laughs> it's about an underdog racehorse in a horse race. Actually, there's quite a number of stories about horses like this, but this is just, it's a very personal kind of feel to it. You know, at the end of the song, Creeping Jane has died and, and whoever is singing the song has this sentimental desire that uh, she should be buried respectfully rather than uh, sent to the knacker's yard and fed to the hounds. And it's, I think it's just, it's a lovely tune and it just has some very bonny images in it too. So, Creeping Jane from Joseph Taylor. the leaflet which mentions yeah, Creeping Jane yeah, and there's a poster for a musical competition reproduced. Yeah. Gosh, I'll have to take uh, a copy and of that. Yeah. you can see that Percy Granger is very much involved. In He's the in the middle of the poster here and this is in the Exchange Hall in Brig, yeah. 1906, Monday, May the 7th. Which would have been out of the back of this building that we're in now. That's great. Literally where the car park is at the rear of this now. Does it feel good to be singing it here, it, Martin? It's wonderful, I love this. I mean, it's just tying up loose ends, isn't it, really? Mm. When to the three-mile post Creeping Janey was so blithe and smart oh, And then she lifted up a little lily-white hoof And she flew past them all like a dart Lulled the day-de-day diddle-lulled-a-dide oh, And then she lifted up a little lily-white hoof And she flew past them all like a dart Lulled the day 
So Martin, I want to talk to you about going to America because yeah. for twelve years, I think. Yeah, you, yeah you, but you went to the yeah, States. Be, what yeah. took you there in the first place? The fact that I could, you know, I was involved as it deeply involved with an American woman and meant I could go and live there, which was incredibly exciting because American music had just been such a huge part of my life. My mother really loved Paul Robeson, and so I used to listen to Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child when I was three, you know. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the melancholy of it. And I wanted to make people feel like that. You know, I wanted to make people cry for a living very early on. So the blues were in your bloodstream right from an early age? Yeah, it was. Both my brothers collected jazz and blues and rock and roll. And I heard that music and I just, the vitality of it really overwhelmed me. And I thought, this is just, this is it. This is it. So when you went to America, did you go in search of the great blues performers? I didn't have to. (laughs) (laughs) It was an extraordinary thing. Um, I was basically so lucky. Within a very short time of me moving there, I was working with heroes and people that I could not imagine I would ever meet or have any connection to at all, you know. What sort of people? Well, Jackson Brown and Steve Miller and people like that. And, and then on the blues scene, all of a sudden I'm standing next to legendary blues musicians. My first solo gig in Memphis, Tennessee, this guy came up to me and said, man, we love that. Would you come and play with our band? And I said, who's the band? And he said, it's Henry Gray and the Cats. And I said, sorry? Tell me about Henry. It was Howling Wolf's piano player. I went, oh, yeah, I'll come and play with the band. And I'd, for about 12 years, I played with him whenever I could. And it was a total treat. What sort of character was he? Very interesting. Henry's still going. He's in his early 90s. He worked with everybody. He worked with Muddy Waters, Elmore James, Sonny Boy Williamson, Little Walter, all these incredible people. But you've written a song about him? Yeah, I did a live record with him in Lafayette, Louisiana. Just before he went on stage, Henry said he'd left his camera in the car in the parking lot. You know, he was in his early 80s by then. He was a little fella. He wasn't, you know, wasn't a big guy at all. But, and so I said, well, Henry, I'll come with you. You know, I was thinking I'll look after him in case he needs it. He smiled at me. And as soon as we got out the back door, he put his hand in his back pocket and he pulled out his little 32 caliber pistol. And he said to me, I always carry my piece, you understand. I don't want to hurt nobody, but I ain't going to stand for no ass whooping. <laughs> oh, what a great one. I ain't and, going to stand for no ass whooping. Yeah, and so I, and I determined I was going to get that in the song. So <laughs> it's one of my proudest moments in writing. Boy, Henry Gray and Zach the Cat that sat on the sofa all day long Watching Mississippi burn all day long Mississippi 
me burning all day long. I never saw such a thing in my life. A 32 bullet and a barlow knife. Lying in the sofa, there's a big barlow knife. There was a 32 bullet and a barlow knife. Henry Gray and Zach the Cat in the university dining hall. Looking at a mule collar hanging on the wall. Talking about a mule collar hanging on the wall. Henry was very funny. The first time I ever played on stage with him, I didn't even have an electric guitar. I had to borrow one. I was just getting my levels sorted out. And rehearsal meant going bang and playing the song. So there wasn't really any rehearsal, but he launched into this song and I hit a few notes with the electric slide guitar and he stopped playing and he leaned right into the microphone and he said, don't you ever get above me, boy. <laughs> and Henry Gray says to me, you got your black and blue runner and your stingery. Henry Gray, he says to me, he says, all them snakes, man, they're out to get me. Come from Canada, Louisiana, and he fought for his country in a foreign land, and he come back home. And what do you know? He's gonna play the piano in Chicago. I got my little 32 in my waistband, don't wanna hurt nobody, but ain't gonna stand for no ass whooping. Ain't gonna stand. I don't wanna hurt nobody, but ain't gonna stand for no ass whooping. Sat on the sofa all day long, watching Mississippi burning all day long. Watching Mississippi burning all day long. Can I congratulate you on getting that phrase into the <laughs> yeah. song so perfectly? It's absolutely fantastic. It was good fun to write. <laughs> um, Martin, we talked a lot about your dad. But I wanted to talk to you about another father figure in your life, your father-in-law, Roy Bailey, yeah. famous folk singer, sociologist. And in fact, the last time I think we spoke was when we were doing an obituary of him for Radio 4. He That's died exactly right. recently. And he obviously played an important part in your life. And you appeared on stage with him quite often, didn't you? Many times, yeah. What was that like? It was great. It was fantastic. Roy was one of the best singers and performers that the folk scenes ever produced. Just as a, as a singer, he was peerless, really. I mean, he opened his mouth. He never had to practice. He, you know, he just opened his mouth and sang like a bird, you know. And I wonder if during his last illness you were able to share music with him still. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I sat in the hospice. I sat by his bed a lot and, and played for him, you know. And it was, it was very, very, very lovely to be able to do that. And he did blow me to bits when he just, you know, came out of unconsciousness and sang the last verse of one particular song, just from nowhere, he just sang this verse and almost finished me off. An incredibly moving moment. It was extraordinary. What was the song? A song called More Than Enough. Why was that an important song to him? Because it's a very true song. It's a song that describes what goes on in the world 
but also the uh, the last verse of it, which he woke up and sang, is uh, consider how little of life that we know we bring nothing, take nothing, pass through and go. We're all of us poor when it comes to the night, in need of the darkness, in need of the light. If we'd learn to want less and love more, there'd be enough for us all, for there's more than enough for us all. What an incredible moment that must have been. <laughs> As I said, I, I was so focused on Roy that it wasn't until I actually looked up, I realised that a dear friend of his, Steve Heap, had walked in and was standing there and with tears streaming down his face, you know. Well, it's been quite a day, Martin. It's been a hell of a day. I think we've, uh, I think we've discovered some things today. When I was a kid, I used to go over this bridge and there'd be a steam train would go underneath it and the entire bridge would just disappear. Wreathed in smoke and steam. Thank you very much, Martin. Oh, what a total pleasure. Thank you, Max, for coming with us too. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Simpson in Scunthorpe. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or follow us to make sure you get all our episodes just as soon as they're launched. And please rate and review us so others can find us. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation to help us produce more wonderful episodes, you can become a patron by going to folkonfoot.com and clicking on Support Us. We'd really appreciate it if you did. There are five other episodes in Season 3 of Folk on Foot featuring the Unthanks on the Northumberland coast, the Lost Word Spell Songs with Jackie Morris and Beth Porter in Pembrokeshire, John Smith in Brixham, Lisa Knapp in Tooting, and Duncan Chisholm at Sandwood Bay. And the 12 episodes of Seasons 1 and 2 featuring more amazing artists are still there if you haven't heard them yet. To keep up with the latest information, you can sign up for our newsletter at folkonfoot.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the handle at folkonfoot. We hope you enjoy listening to Folk on Foot just as much as we love making it.